All right. So that should be us. All right, folks. So uh, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. And with me again, I think this is the third time you've been on the podcast. Yeah. This is, uh, once again, James Gregory uh, here today to talk about uh, the Marines on Blankmont Ridge. Welcome, James. Thank you. All right. Glad to be back for the third time. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think you've got the record. Um, it's either you or Rob, or you guys are tied right now. Uh, uh, so who's, who's been on the podcast here the most? Uh, you know, the, the world is counting with dating breath. So. <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm glad that you're. I'm glad that you're here, man. Um, so James James Gregory is a PhD candidate at the University of Oklahoma. He has written and edited several books on the Marine Corps in World War One. Some of these books are The Story of One Marine, The World War I Letters and Photos of Private Thomas L. Stewart, A Poet at War, The Story of a World War I Marine, and C'est la Guerre, The Memoirs of Captain James McBrayer Sellers. And he also has another book in the works, very exciting, about uh, Alvin York. So once again, James, welcome. And if I can go ahead and lead off with a question for you, you, sir, write a good deal about United States Marine Corps related figures in World War One. Got to be honest, I'm not sure if I've asked this before, uh, but do you have any personal connections to the United States Marine Corps, World War One, or the United States Marine Corps in World War One? Well, um, I'm glad you asked. You asked me the first time and I didn't have an answer, but now I do. So that's Ooh. even better. Um, and also, I'll bring up, since I know your podcast was the first time I ever got to talk about The Other 16, uh, not that The Other 16 is completed and will be published this year by Texas A&M University Press. So uh, that'll be a nice one. So it's been a few years since that first, but that's coming yeah. out. Um, as for your question, uh, yes, I do now have a connection. Now, when I answered three years ago when we first did this, I didn't have a connection. Oh, wow. Um, so I'll go ahead and sh um, for those who are just listening, I have videos on YouTube. We'll have pictures. So um, I'll go ahead and share it. So I do have a connection and it was my great, great aunt, Cora Youngblood Corson. Okay. Um, so here's an image of her. She was an entertainer. The only women um, who were allowed to work for the Knights of Columbus besides secretaries. So she performed all, all over England, France and Germany for the troops um, I think the final number was like almost 4 million troops she performed for. Wow. Uh, so I've, I've recently learned of this connection. And then as for Marine Corps, I also, in learning about her at the same time, I learned that uh, I'm a junior. And so my dad is also named James Gregory, James Patrick okay. Gregory. Um, his great uncle, so my great, great uncle, was okay. named James Patrick Allen. And he was a Marine in World War II and was wounded on Iwo Jima. And... My grandmother was very fond of him, so she named her first son after him. Um, so I'm connectedly named after my great uncle, James Patrick Allen. Absolutely, absolutely. And Iwo Jima, man, that was no no joke. So that's yeah, he, and it was his first time. He'd been a, uh, from what I can tell, he was a, a rifle range instructor in uh, Mare Island, and then uh, he gets shipped over to Iwo Jima one week, gets wounded, he's out. Wow. So. His entirety in the Pacific was about a week, but it was on EO and he was wounded from the reports I can find. He was wounded while rescuing another Marine working as a, a stretcher bearer. So oh, not a bad legacy for a week. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, that's, well, 
that's great. You've, you've got that research now. Now, now we've got those connections. And yeah. hopefully when we have you back on again to talk about uh, the book, uh, the new book when it comes out, um, hopefully I won't ask you this question. Do, do just go <laughs> ahead and just slap that question down. Be like, dude, just refer to your other episode. That's fair. So, <laughs> all right. Um, let me just, um, uh, I just need to minimize my screen here for just a moment. Uh, sorry about that. Perfect. Okay. All right. So purpose of, of, uh, of our talk here today is we are uh, talking about your new article, which is called A Calamity of Errors. Uh, the Untold Story of the 5th Regiment at Blankmont Ridge on 4 October 1918. And of course, the 5th Regiment being the 5th Marine Regiment, part of the 2nd Division uh, AEF during World War I. Um, so uh, for listeners, we again, we I have covered Blankmont uh, on the podcast. So you have four narrative episodes there, along with uh, an interview episode with uh, Stephen Gerard, uh, who's a, uh, a mutual friend of, of ours here. Um, however, uh, James, if you would, just for someone coming in right now, brand new to the podcast, um, could you give us a quick background on Blankmont? And um, I'll hold off on the follow-on question. So if you can just sure. start off with that background. Sure. Well, and one thing I will point out, and this is mostly a uh, just distinction when we're talking, um, a lot of the terms we're going to be using since this was published in the Marine Corps History Journal, uh, it's obviously all dealing with Marine. So everything should be assumed to be Marine Corps unless specifically mentioned otherwise. Excellent. So 5th Regiment, that's always going to be the Marine Corps. If it's someone that's Army, I will make sure to say Army. And if you read the article, it will only point out Army because everything else is just assumed to be Marine. Assumed to be Marine. Um, Excellent point. Yeah. So, um, well, and I know you've covered it, so I won't go into too much with it, but obviously the Battle of Blancmont was a uh, almost maybe two weeks, or the second division is sent in to capture this part. It's technically part of the Meuse-Argonne offensive at the very, very beginning, but could really be considered its own thing. Um, what I wanted to focus on in particular is the second day, right? For, for October. It started on October 3rd with the second division getting involved, but we're going to talk about for October. Um, so there's really not a lot to discuss what's going on. The Marines have had a, a great attack in the morning or on October 3rd, and they've managed to capture some ground. They've managed to make it up onto Blancmont, um, at least a little bit to the ridge. And it's really going to be for October that becomes one of the worst days. Um, and what's significant about this is for October is actually the worst single day's casualties for the Marine Corps in World War I. And in fact, it wouldn't be uh, beaten until Peleliu. So uh, the fact that this has not really been talked about, I know you talked about it in your um, episodes, yep. which is great. Um, so a lot of this might seem um, to go over what you did before, but we're going to get into some more details. So yeah. um, the 4 October itself will be really today's main section. And so unfortunately, I don't have the full Blancmont for you. No, that's okay. So folks, if, if 
For some reason, you haven't yet listened to the Blancmont episodes. We're talking um, Champagne region um, near the French city of, it always kills me, this name, uh, Rennes, and that is spelled R-E-I-M-S. You can also see it sometimes as R-H-E-I-M-S. Um, so to the west of the Meurs-Argonne front. Um, so we have a, a ridge, it's called Blancmont because of the, the chalky soil of the uh, Champagne region, um, you know, basically means white hill or, or white mountain. Not much of a hill. It was about a, it was about a 200 meter uh, mm -hmm. height, but for that region, it was, it, it dominated everything for miles around. So obviously this was a, uh, a land feature that, that need, needed to be taken back from the, from the Germans. And for those who are watching the YouTube video, you'll see a photo here where you can see just how expansive that region is. So even a small hill really takes over that whole area, which is exactly what Blancmont was. Yeah, it makes makes a big difference, even just a few um, a few meters in, in difference. So, yeah, so we've got Blancmont. We've got the American attack. Now, my question for you is uh, the, the follow on question before I forget was. Given the background on Blancmont, do you think that we were um, tricked by the French into making this attack? So I don't think I don't think anyone was tricked. I I think we, credit needs to be given all the way through with the fact that the second division was uh, was one hell of a division, and their successes in many of these battles really made it. I mean, the French have been trying to deal with Blancmont for months if not a year so to send in the second division is really a great choice I mean, they are one of the most battle-hardened divisions and i think that all the errors that happen which we will talk about is just a a big failure not that anyone did it on purpose i think it was it was accidental but this failure really causes a lot of issues because there's off there are issues with the french and for October is one of those issues. Um, but I don't think anyone, you could call it being tricked. I think okay. it's a, I think it's a great decision given who they had to pick to, for this fight. Okay. My, uh, so for listeners, my, I'm really just my, my pathetic attempt at stirring the pot here. My, my idea <laughs> was that uh, the, the original plan was for the French to borrow um two American divisions, the second and the 36th. The second division was supposed to go in first because that's the veteran division, but there was there were rumors of breaking up the second division um, and attaching the brigades to French divisions, which of course, uh, to General Pershing, um, Secretary of War Newton Baker, those were big no-nos. Uh, and on all the way down to Major General John Lejeune, who the commander of the division of the second division, uh, he also, once he heard these rumors, he, he basically went straight to French General uh, Henri Gouraud of the Fourth French Army, and, and basically said, "Hey, look, if you keep this division together, we'll take Blancmont." Um, and then I always kind of thought of like that, kind of just all worked out well for the French. Of like, sure, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I, I think that's a it's a fair point, especially considering the losses in the second division. Um, but like I said, I think all the way through, while there are these bigger issues, the results of the day prove that it was the right choice. 
Agreed. Agreed. So second division AEF, um, as I've noted in the, in the podcast episodes, um, you know, it's, it's one good thing to label yourself, um, a, a veteran division and, and successful on the battlefield. But when you, when you get that grudging respect from your enemies, that's also a great indicator. So the Germans had, uh, they labeled the second division as a shock unit, which is basically putting them on par with German stormtroopers. So, uh, in held in very high regard by, by the enemy. All the way through, which is fine. And with the 36 coming in, there's a stark contrast between how the second division handled the battle versus the 36 division handled the battle. Yeah. I mean, I'm from Oklahoma, so I am partial to the 36th. Um, but there's a stark contrast between those two divisions on how, they handled the battle. So it's very clear that this was um, the best decision, even though it was very costly. So James, what happened on October 4th uh, at Blankmont and why did things go wrong? Well, that's going to be the fun part. So, and, and dealing with this article um, and I kind of want to explain a little why this article came about. Um, it might seem kind of obvious based on the, uh, other two times I've been on your podcast, but I seem to have a habit of picking topics that are going to be controversial. Um, <laughs> things that I like to stir the pot, you know, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I this came about the same way. And you had him on with Steven Gerrard. Um, this was something he'd always mentioned, I mean, you know, his love for the battle. And it ended up with like a Facebook argument on one of these you know, collectors pages. And oh he brought up the fact that, you know, the, fifth regiment had retreated and people don't like that. They don't like to hear the Marines retreated. This is like the only documented retreat. And before I wrote this article, there's only, you know, a couple places it's been published before and no one's really paid much attention. So it started from this, this Facebook argument and people saying, no, they didn't. Uh, me just saying, well, fine, I guess I'll sit down and write the article. And so I, I started from there, and that's what it revealed that 4 October is is almost absent in the historical record. Uh, if you, when I started doing the research, if you start reading um, Marine Corps histories on the topic, you're not going to find anything on 4 October. Now, um, Devil Dogs does mention it with George Clark, but before George, you know, primary sources or these books that came out, um, they don't. They don't talk about it. For October, So I wanted to know why. And what I've discovered in doing the research is a lot of things happened on 4 October, but they all boil down to failure, failure of command um, from the division level with Lejeune all the way down to the company. Um, commanders failing in their responsibilities. Um, and it also, and I, I may just, I'll just pull this straight from the article. Mm-hmm. Um as as the direct reason, um, of course. Now I have to find it. So oh, no worries. Yeah, that's that's on me. So I apologize. I may have to cut this one out so I know exactly. Okay. So um, what happened on four October? So taken directly from my article mm-hmm. is to find the answer. We really have to look at a lot of things. That is. The failure of command, the failure to properly coordinate and understand the attack from top down, overzealous Marines who end up putting themselves in such a detrimental position, 
okay. a chaotic retreat, which that that terminology right there has gotten a lot of hate and pushback because I'm calling it chaotic in a retreat, but a retreat is chaotic um, and a lack of acknowledgement. So basically what happens is everyone fails. The Marines put themselves in a bad situation. They retreat and then everyone tries to pretend like it never happened. And all of these things are the culmination of this article because the these blunders, I mean, this, like I said, is the worst casualties. So these mistakes bled the second division and the Marine Corps. This is um, number wise. I mean, there were 1,097 casualties on a single day. So one day over a thousand casualties um, never before has happened. So do you have a specific one or do you just want me to go ahead and start from the, Oh, just, just uh, the events, just, you know, just, I mean, sure. just the, the basic events of October 4th and then like what, okay. what led to those, uh, to those failures of, you know, at, at, at the, the various levels. Sure. Well, we can get down to it. So, um, for those on the podcast, if you watch the YouTube video, you'll see some of these images. Um, as you can see, it's pretty open, right? The Blanc these are photos of a Marine who went back after the battle. So you see trenches, these are German trenches, and the, the Germans are dug in, right? The Germans have had plenty of time to build a very fortified position around Blanc Uh They've constructed redoubts, they've laid razor wire, they've created channels of attack for the Marines. Um, nature is also providing them some help because there's these new growth um, forests. There's also some farmland that's been fallow since the Germans took over. So now it's overgrown and it obscures a lot of the site. So the Marines are going to basically walk in. And I also need to point out that there's also the third brigade with the 23rd and 9th infantry who are also involved in this, but we're only going to talk about the fifth Marines. Yep. Um, the Marines don't know exactly what they're about to get into. So there is a fortified um, there's a long line of fortifications that they have to go against. So the big issues is that the French have not been able to knock the Germans loose. And when the second division arrives on first uh, October, the battle was supposed to start on the second, but Major General Lejeune wanted to push it another day. So it gets pushed to the third. And in the attack on the third of October, the Marines have managed, the 6th Regiment specifically has managed to take parts of Blancmont Ridge and many fortified positions along the summit. So it's looking like things are going really well for the Marine Corps. They've already taken part of their objective in one day. Right. So everything's looking great. The 5th Regiment was pushed up to clear out a, a, a stretch of the trench network called the Essenhook. Um, and you can just use this image for reference. So the Marines go and take it. They give it over to the French, who then lose it that night. So now these fortified positions have been taken back by the Germans. So for October rolls Now, if we're gonna, we'll start from the top down as this discussion goes. So top down to coordinate this attack, division and brigade. You know they need to figure out the time. Well, the third and fourth brigades were given a inst instructions by a runner that said 0600 will be the designated time at the attack. So, okay, 0600, that, that makes sense. However, 0600 is not the plan Brigade and Division had set forth. So this discussion of where this runner came from is unknown. But 
The official plan, and I'm quoting field order number 19, which was issued at 0200, 2 a.m. on 4 October. Okay. That the Army Corps is to continue the advance on 4 October. The 170th Division of the French is to take position to the left of the 2nd Division and follow its advance, the 3rd Brigade on the right of the 4th, and the 22nd Division on the uh, right of the uh, 3rd Brigade. So two French units and then 9th and 4th. Well, that morning, the French don't follow up along the sides. The French end up moving out, which leaves kind of open area on both sides of the uh, Americans. Yeah. But this field order, and this is the important part, the field order that talks about the advanced states, the hour of advance will be announced later. So they haven't decided it yet. They did designate that the second field artillery would support the attack, but no tanks would be provided. And aerial support would be ordered by the second division. However, it doesn't say when. So at six o'clock, the Marines advance. The second division advances at six o'clock, despite not having actual instructions for it. Uh, this leads to a lot of issues. One, brigade and division haven't decided what time anything should go, so they haven't coordinated anything. So when the Marines step off, when the 5th Regiment steps off, there's no artillery barrage. There's no cover. Normally, they'd have a rolling barrage, and they don't have it. On top of that, there's no aerial support. So the Germans control the air, and they control the artillery. So as soon as they start advancing, they're hit by German artillery barrages. No, no cover whatsoever. And with the attack, the 3rd Battalion is leading. And the second battalion's in support, first battalion in reserve, right? This is something I know you covered. Um, The 9th and 23rd Infantry are pushing up on the right. However, they are also not being covered. And they don't make it as far as the Marines, so they get bogged down, which now means the Marines' right flank is open. Um, As the Marines start pushing forward, there's mass confusion within uh, brigade and divisional headquarters. Because now there's an attack on, and no one has ordered it, nor has anyone prepared for it. So command is trying to figure it out. Um, Major General Lejeune orders that, and this is from field order number 37, the advance will be made at an hour to be communicated later, and will push forward the progress of the, of the French on the right and left. Uh, didn't happen. Right. In contrast to this, at 10.55, right, the, the attack started five hours ago. Yeah. At 10.55, the Army Brigadier General uh, Ely, Hanson Ely, commanding general of the 3rd Brigade, he states that the division will move forward today at H hour, according to the order sent to you last night. H hour has not been decided at this moment because we are waiting for the attack on the division, so the French, on our left and right, to develop. We do not want to get any farther out in advance of those divisions. So this shows the disconnect between division and what's going on because the 4th and 3rd Brigade have already been five hours into this push forward. And division is still trying to tell them, yeah, we'll figure this out later. You know, don't worry about it. That's that's interesting because I always, the, the way I understood it was that um, that was that was one of the tools that, that Lejeune and his commanders used was that golden clause, like how I'm thinking of it, of how, hey, H hour is going to be uh, determined later. That's how Lejeune got around the fact of um, 
trying to keep things on his timeline. Like he, he yeah. would, he would announce the attack time when he thought things were at up to his standard of readiness, um, right. rather than being pushed into launching an unprepared attack, which, which apparently is, is, you know, what, what happened here on the 4th of October. Exactly. And they don't even know that it's happened yet. They're still sending out orders with no idea that there's an, they've already pushed well beyond their objective. Um, so one of my favorites and it's on here, but I'll read it. This is one of my favorite quotes from a 67th company Marine. Um, and it shows how unbelievably confused everyone was. So this Marine, uh, mentioned that they were only, they were a little more than a kilometer past their jump off point. And they were halted obviously by the Germans They were halted and waiting to push forward. And all of a sudden this Marine witnesses a, and this is a quote, a spectacular dash into the enemy lines by a staff car. Through misinformation, the occupant of this staff car must have been under the impression that our front line was several miles ahead of its actual location. The car approached from the rear at a terrific speed and passing us proceeded down the road into the enemy territory. The car was greeted with a burst of machine gun fire and several riflemen opened up on it. The driver stopped his car, turned it, and again passed us at top speed. The driver and his occupant were unhurt by the fire, but they no doubt had been treated to the thrill of their lives. So <laughs> you can't really get any more of a, of a perfect example of just how confused everyone is when a staff car just flies by the front line. You know, that's <laughs> it, it seems, you know, it, it seems like almost humorous, you know, like, you know, 100, 103, 104 years later. But man, that that must have been pretty, uh, pretty terrifying, particularly for those the, the two guys in, in the car. Um, yeah. So, James, what, what would you attribute to this? Is this just fog of war stuff like, you know, the communication between leadership and, and the guys on the ground was. It was just so much more difficult during World War One. Yeah. Um, what do you think? I think none. This is the obviously this is the top part, right? So this is the division disconnect. Um, I I don't have an answer now. I would love to attribute it, but I feel like attributing it attributing it to anything is diminishing the responsibility of those who were in command. So even if you know they had a you know disjointed communications. The orders they're sending out are five hours after the attack has started. So if they are that disconnected, then who's really running the show? You know, where did that runner who reported six o'clock as H hour, where did he even come from? You know, uh, I would love to make an excuse for him, but I don't think there is an excuse. I think this is just a fail, which is why the article is a calamity of errors. It's just an error. It's a failure of command to properly organize this. Um, and this will come back to it when we talk about after the war, because the command tries to pretend like it never happened. They just skip over for October. They really want to make it seem like they didn't know. So I, I don't know. And I wrote in the article that uh, no doubt an attempt to figure out exactly what was happening at the front. The staff car made it back to the American lines for a report and possibly a change of clothes. So, you know, I mean, these guys. You send a staff car up to figure out what's going on, and they didn't even know where the front line was. So they, there's a horrible disconnect there, and I don't know 
who's to blame, but in the end, it's going to fall on the command. It's their, their responsibility to figure this out. Um, so after the confusion of headquarters, like I said, screwed up everything. So there is no artillery support for the Marines all day. The second, the second, um, field or 15th field artillery regiment should have provided a rolling barrage. Never, not, not a rolling barrage all day. And since they didn't know where the front line was, they couldn't coordinate later down the day to protect them. Right. So you have uh, the entire 5th Regiment walking into a German artillery barrage and a well-defensive line, well, de- uh, well-prepared well defensive line with no cover. Um, and there is one Marine. Um, he was a second lieutenant, Sydney, Sydney Thayer. He wrote a letter to the ABMC and he mentioned that a, uh, um, he spoke to a Lieutenant Klein of the 12th or 15th Field Artillery who was serving as liaison officer. And they started talking. This is obviously after the battle. And when we got oriented, he told me that as far as he knew, the supporting artillery had absolutely no knowledge that an attack was even supposed to be made that day. And until that very moment, they didn't even know where they were. So the artillery has no idea that there's even... Working And in this letter, he does mention this, of course, would not make a good reading from a staff point of view. But in as much as it is the truth, I thought I would let you have it for what it's worth. So the men on the ground are realizing the command has no idea what's going on. So on top of that, there's also the aero squadrons weren't there to protect them. So the Germans controlled the air and the Germans constantly all day were strafing the Marines and dropping bombs and the, the soldiers um so the marines are dealing with these issues so that's division so what's happening on the ground and i know this is a part you did talk about um so this is a map from uh the lieutenant colonel um john swift and pete owen's book and it's really confusing but i want to point out here that basically what we're dealing with is this line right here so this is lancamont ridge the attack starts here and the Marines have pushed up into this little pocket, um, which I believe Mackin calls the box. Mm-hmm. So you see here, they've pushed up into this basic pocket. They're surrounded on all sides. And this is where the 3rd Battalion pushes them up, pushes themselves into. So Ma- Major Henry Larson is in charge of the uh, 3rd Battalion, and he's pushed forward. And remember, the 3rd Battalion is the only Marine unit to push up. Well, with this, the 3rd Battalion, under command of Henry Larson, uh, just pushed as far as they could go. They, uh, he, he does, well, let's see, who was this Marine? A Marine recounted later that the enemy held the west end of the ridge to the north, to the east. Um, he had machine guns in the woods. The open field was uh, this horseshoe of fire, which is what we just saw, that perfect U they went into. Correct. Um, and as they advanced, things just got worse and worse and worse. But despite heavy losses, the Marines kept pushing because they saw the Germans were retreating. And so this is where my argument comes in. If you get overzealous Marines who they see the Germans are falling back and in this fervor, they push and they chase them down. Um, some of the uh, Mackin. comments. Uh, yeah, Mackin, exactly. Mackin talks about that in his book. Yeah, running out. Yeah, and him. I think I think I cited it right here. The fury of their rush, coupled with the sight of running quarry, led them on. 
And so they come over the ridge and they go down into this valley, chasing the Germans through the woods. So while the fever of the attack lasted, discipline was forgotten and the urge to hunt and kill. So that's what Mackin says. And he says the wily German had drawn his troops away on either side as the hunter fell, uh, chased down their quarry and now were bottled by the Germans. So these overzealous Marines hot on the trails, the German pushed right into the German front. And when they came over um, the ridge, they go into a draw at the base of Ludwigsrucken, which when they finally got to that draw, the uh, Germans opened fire. And this is where you get some of these heart-wrenching accounts. Um, uh, Harvey Hurst, who was a private in the 43rd Company, he mentioned in a letter after the war that either because the Marines went so fast or because of a misunderstanding, without the French on the left and right, the Marines kind of forced themselves into a pocket because no one was there to protect them on the side. Um, also, Captain Augustus Hale from the 77th Machine Gun Company, he starts talking about when they're bringing up the machine guns that we advance down the hill and the enemy could be seen coming from the trenches in front of the town and making for the bottom of the hill to our left as if they intended to attack on our left rear. At the time we were suddenly subjected to heavy machine gun, trench mortar, one pounder, and some artillery fire. So they come over that ridge and the Germans open up with everything they have on these Marines. And because of that, they left all their flanks exposed. So with their flanks exposed, they're dealing with the front, left, right, but they also ran through these woods chasing down their prey so haphazardly that they did not clear the woods behind them. So um, Major uh, Waller, W.T. Waller of the Sixth Machine Gun Battalion, he was quoted later saying that we are subjected on the front and flanks and the woods behind us. So now they are trapped in a perfect box, all sides. On top of that, the air is controlled by the Germans. So these Marines are being attacked front, left, right, back, and from up top. So five different areas are just opening on these poor Marines who have rushed over the ridge. Um, so the third battalion starts taking heavy, heavy losses. And I quoted DeWitt Peck here on the, on the screen saying that when he talked about the 43rd company, Northeast, Southwest and airplanes shooting down from above. So the Marines are, the casualties are pouring in. Um, and from the accounts of the Marine, uh, the medics, you, say that they are streaming in, steady stream of wounded all day long. Um, Major Larson is taking such heavy losses that he starts calling in, I cannot hold the front line longer. That is my position. I've already, he says, I've already evacuated three company commanders and many officers. Having a hard time holding the men together, help, the situation is critical. So Larson is stuck. And these, they've lost their officers, their commanders. Um, so as the 3rd Battalion is trying to survive, Robert Messersmith, Major Messersmith, who is commanding the 2nd Battalion, who is in support, moves up to relieve the 3rd Battalion. Now, this is where the, the story really gets complicated. So as the Marines, the 2nd Battalion, push over the ridge, they find themselves in the exact same position as the 3rd Battalion. So what's, what's going to happen? Well, the exact same situation is going to happen. So as they come over the ridge, 
Um, the Marines don't even have their own machine gun support because the machine guns are having to shoot up in the air against the airplanes. So the, the machine gun groups that are with the Marines are not able to shoot the Germans. They're shooting upwards because they're trying to cover from the sky. So if you think of how crazy that is, this is the first time these Marines, they're not shooting at the enemy in front of them. They're shooting at the enemy above them. Wow. Yeah. And as we go through, the 3rd Battalion, the 2nd Battalion are now subjected to all of these issues. And as they scatter into isolated groups trying to find some type of cover, you have, and this is a photo of DeWitt Peck, who we'll talk about, and Robert Messersmith. You end up with the Germans realizing that they are about to fish in a barrel. So I know you talked about Mackin and Oslin, so I wanted to bring in some German perspectives to what happened. Yeah, so James, real real quick before you go, and and uh, so we mentioned Mackin a couple of times. So for the folks listening, oh, all right. uh, we've got um, by Mackin we mean Elton Mackin, who wrote a uh, a memoir post war, uh, semi fictionalized, but um, pretty pretty autobiographical. Uh, it's called Suddenly We Didn't Want to Die, um, and then the maps the awesome map referenced just a little while ago of blank Mont that uh folks on youtube can see that is from um lieutenant colonels uh pete owens and john swift's uh, monograph called uh a hideous price yes. which is is available for free uh as a pdf uh, online um and I'll, I'll make sure that that i link to it in the episode notes uh because it's it's an excellent um Excellent piece of work. Of course, James, we're gonna we're gonna link to your your article here as yeah. well, so folks can have both. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to make that. Uh, oh, perfect. Make that. I, I forget sometimes that people don't know the names. Um, so I'm bringing a new name, Lieutenant Colonel Ernst Otto. Uh, he wrote a book about the German perspective during the war, and the Marine Corps actually published it. So the copy I own is actually belonged to a Marine officer who was at Blockbuster. Um, and that is that is an expensive book, folks. I I tried to get my hands on it, but I I think the the cheapest copy I found was around three hundred twenty five dollars. And uh, yeah, and I got lucky. I bought I bought Stephen a, a, as one for a gift, and I paid sixty for it. And then my copy, which belonged to a Marine officer, was a hundred. So it's an expensive book, but it is one hell of a book. Yeah. So it's it's great, and it really helped with this because. He wrote about this attack. And Otto says the separate and isolated groups coming in carelessly at first were at once subjected to a withering concentrated fire of light and heavy machine guns. Everywhere, good results were observed. Gaping holes were torn in the lines of riflemen, entire columns being mowed down. Much to our advantage were the light yellow-brown uniforms of the Americans, altogether impractical for this terrain which I will comment, the terrain of Blancmont is white. It is white chalk. So you can imagine how easy it is to see these American uniforms with a white chalk background. Uh, they were visible at great distances and offered excellent targets. One could plainly observe the unrest in his rank grew every minute. Lone individuals and frequently entire detachments ran aimlessly about. Already a few began to escape up the hill. Finally, the hostile detachments in wild flight hastened up the slope. Even during their flight, they were sharply pursued by our machine gun fire. So we'll, we'll talk about what happens there at the end. And there's also, uh, this is from a carrier pigeon message from the German 200th Division, who were fighting the 23rd Infantry. They weren't even fighting the Marines. They were fighting the 23rd. 
They said Army, enemy uh, advance. Do what? The Army Regiment. Uh, yeah. Arm, Army's uh, 23rd Infantry. Right. So he says the enemy advanced far in sector of right neighbor division. So just to their right. Enemy in sector of right neighbor regiment forced to retreat by our flanking machine gun fire. So you have these units that are facing the 23rd Infantry turning their guns on these 5th Marines because they see that they're too far up. So it shows this perfect horseshoe pocket that these men have put themselves into. So as, as you can probably tell, the situation is quite dire, right? The situation is horrible. Um, the Marines are being destroyed. The 3rd Battalion is almost wiped out. The 2nd Battalion is taking these heavy, heavy casualties. And when you, when you start looking at it and you start to try and think, well, what happened? Well, DeWitt Peck seems to be the, the, the key to what happened. Um, Captain Peck, and this is from uh, John Ostland, who was a 55th Company uh, Marine. He wrote in an account that uh, all hell broke loose, and we were told by uh, Captain Peck to dig in. As we dug, the shells from the German artillery rained on us. Machine guns to our left opened up. Um, Lieutenant Mayer was killed. Captain Peck was hit in the neck. So the captain has now been hit in the neck. Seeing that we faced annihilation, Captain Peck shouted, fall back. By whose orders, the men shouted back. By order of Captain Peck was the reply. And so the retirement began. As men saw a chance to make it, they left. But I have to give it to Captain Peck. He was wounded and was going to get out of here anyway. He could have left us to our fate or let some other officer give the orders to fall back. He had everything to lose personally and nothing to gain, but he gave the order anyway. And the Marine Corps doesn't look lightly on falling back, no matter why. So that is this, this is the key to this whole story, is these men are being annihilated and there is an order to fall back. So this is the only known retreat of the Marines. They took some horrible, horrible fighting. Bellow Wood, Soissons in the Beadfield, but they never retreated. Yet here is the first time they are retreating. Now, what should have happened, this is, this is fine. Now, it is the Marines don't like to say they retreated, but they did. It's undeniable. Um, the issue isn't that they, they were retreating. It's not an issue of falling back, right? Now, and that's going to be a, a, a stickler of people, the terms falling back and retreat. It's the same term. They are leaving the area. Okay. Calling it falling back is just a nicer way of saying it with military lingo that, no, we're not retreating. We're just falling back. Or my favorite, we're not retreating, we're just advancing, you know, it's from in, uh, uh, the reservoir. Um, I'm blanking right now. In the Korean War, when they're surrounded, they're not retreating, they're just advancing in the other direction. Right, right. Um, but that's not what happened here. They're falling back, there's no big deal. The issue is that what should have happened is when the 2nd Battalion came up to relieve the 3rd Battalion, the 3rd Battalion should be falling back and the 2nd Battalion holding that position. That's how it should have been done. Okay. That would have been perfectly fine. Get back to a, a, a logical position. However, what happened was as the 3rd Battalion starts to fall back, men of the 2nd Battalion, who are now in the same situation as the 3rd, they start falling back with it. So what should have been a layered retreat is now disorderly and almost chaotic. Right? The men are just, they see a chance, they take it and they're gone. And this collapse of both battalions 
led to a disorganized retreat of the Marines. They're panicked. They're out of there. And the word panicked is also one that I get a lot of pushback on. Okay. So I said chaotic in the article, but chaotic and panicked, they're synonyms. So this panicked retreat is the issue. And as they're falling back and running away, Major Hamilton of the 1st Battalion, who has been in reserve, he's been brought up to relieve the, the, the Marines. He comes over the hill and he witnesses Major Major, sorry, Major Messersmith, Captain Peck, and Captain Jackson, and several other lieutenants at the forefront of this retreat. So Major Messersmith explained that he had lost all of his officers and Captain Jackson appeared hopeless. Uh, Hamilton and uh, another Captain James Nelms, who commanded the 8th Company, endeavored to stop this retreat. They didn't, they were like, whoa, you know, slow down, do not retreat, you're going to collapse our line. And they couldn't. So both of them pulled out their pistols and threatened to shoot any man who retreated. And that's what stopped the line. So the, the, the 1st Battalion getting there, Hamilton basically stops the advance. And I've put here on the, on the video uh, a photo of Hamilton and the document where he reported that the uh, woods were heavily shelled. And all of a sudden he saw Captain Peck, Jackson, and Messersmith retreating um, at the front of their lines, which is the no-no. You should not have the officer in charge of a battalion retreating in front of his men, right? So with the consolidation of the 5th Regiment's battalion, so now all three battalions are up in the front lines. Um, the 1st Battalion now absorbed the fire, and the 2nd and 3rd filled out the lines. Um, Private Oslin later recalled, we had no line, just groups of men in patches of woods, and they hunkered down. Isolated squads of Marines attempted to reconnect um, throughout the night. And this happened like uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. So this is only four hours. Well, the Marines are going to be stuck here now in that position where they've held the line all night. And they're going to remain in this position for the next few days. Wow. Um, throughout the night, they were continually attacked. Uh, one Marine even said it was worse than Bella Wood being out there during that night. All the counterattacks by the Germans, the constant shelling. And pretty much the 5th Regiment had been rendered combat ineffective. But they remained on the front line until October 9th, which is five days later. So that is, that is, in a sense, what we're talking about is a very short, like, hour-long event happened about 11 o'clock in the morning where the Marines have gone over, they put themselves into this box, they are decimated, and the 3rd and 2nd Battalion retreat chaotically in a panic and end up being stopped by the 1st Battalion and they consolidate their lines and hold their position. So that, that's what happens on 4 October. Okay. Right. There are major failures with command at the beginning of the day that resulted in these issues, and then a failure of commanders at the company level, at the battalion level, who are panicking and running away as their men and their lines fall apart. And it takes Major Hamilton to finally stop this and get things settled. So that is for October. And there's the investigation, but you have a question on for October itself before I move on to that part. Yeah. I mean, we, we've covered some of this here. So, um, I mean, we talked about, you know, the events, we've talked about why did things go wrong? Um, a couple of questions I had here was, I mean, you've also pretty much answered these as well as like, you know, and I, I 
I think we all know why, you know, why have the Marines shied away from October 4th? Um, you know, and I added a statement after that question is in, in my own research for the podcast episodes, you know, using, using mainly secondary sources, just so folks know, um, Major General John A. Lejeune, he's frequently cited as, as being uh, brilliant in his planning of that operation because he, he attacked, um, it wasn't a frontal attack, it was like an oblique attack on the German line. And then he even had both of his brigades um, go around a, a patch of woods, uh, I believe it's called um, basically Viper Wood in French, uh, where there was a German unit um, stuck in there and um, they just surrounded them. And, you know, rather than than get bogged down in the woods, they just went around it, attacked up towards Blankmont Ridge and then dealt with the woods like the next day. Um, so that's cited as, uh, you know, pretty, pretty smart tactical thinking. Um, so for you, James, I guess let's just kind of roll these two together. Like, why have Marines shied away from the day? I think we pretty much know the answer to that question. But why? Um, why not the use of the word retreat? Again, I think we know there too, but. <laughs> um, that's that's going to just go back to the Marine Corps itself, right? The Corps, I mean, they they are infallible, right? This The Marine Corps doesn't retreat. The Marine Corps is, and they are, they're a wonderful fighting division. There's no problem with that. And I think that kind of right. helps me that I'm, I don't have a military background to save me from some uh, bias and wanting to make sure the Marines are told in a nice light. But in reality, this is this is a moment that proves they're not infallible. They've retreated. And, you know, he, the Marine was right. The Marine Corps does not look good on retreating, and which is what I'll talk about here in a second with what happened to Messerschmitt. But just what I told you, let's just talk about that first five hours of the day. Sure. You've got a whole collapse of command, failures on all levels, and if it hadn't been stopped by Hamilton, that would have been disastrous. But you have a whole day that's just a calamity of errors. All these things are tied up. So I think that I know that's why they don't want to talk about it. But then using the word retreat, I brought this up in the article, that if you read authors who've written for the Marine Corps, or if they are Marines themselves, they don't typically use the word. Oh, the, they'll, they won't use the word retreat. They'll use the word fall back, falling back, but they won't use the word retreat. And I ended up, um, uh, Pete Owen, who is um, first and foremost a, a good friend and also a hell of a historian, um, I used him kind of as a uh, an example in the article because it's the same idea. I mean, he is a Marine and he's written this last book on Blancmont, but he's also written another book, which I would suggest everyone go read, called yeah, To the Limit of Endurance, okay. a Battalion of Marines in the Great War. Well, in that book, which he published in 2007, he says the 5th Marines retreated in disorder. But when you look at his book with uh, John Swift, which they published for the Marine Corps, it does not use the word retreat. The word retreat is not in the book at all. So... Obviously, I mean, that's your to your audience, you know, and I think it's great that the Marine Corps published this article, which is direct uh, conflict with that idea. But you won't find Marine uh, discussions that say retreat. They want it to sound like it was just a simple move back, which is where the investigation comes in to prove people wrong. 
who have written this idea of falling back. Um, and I know there was a question you had asked me before where I got it, where I got these documents. Yeah. So, this is a big one. And uh, I know Pete and John hadn't found it when um, they wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically this article is, uh, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for several people. Right. So, I mean, Stephen gave me the idea. Annette Ammerman had, she found the investigation for me. Okay. Uh, and then Pete and John provided other accounts from their work and Walt Ford, uh, provided editing. So there was a lot of people helping with this article to pull these things together. But, uh, these investigation, it was in Messersmith's biographical file and, it's missing. These documents are missing from like the second division records. So I want to go through these. I think I have one. No, I don't. Not here. Um, so this document here is when he first uh, submitted it. When Hamilton first submitted it, he said, I saw Mezzer Smith retreating. Everything was chaotic. So after the battle ended, the 36th division has taken over for the second and the second division has been able to fall back and, you know, go back to a rest area. On October 13th, the uh, Colonel Logan Feeland, and I think I got their photos here. Mm-hmm. Um, Logan Feeland sent a letter to Messersmith uh, basically reporting what happened. And so he's telling Messersmith, submit to me any statement you may desire to make in regard to that part of the report referring to yourself. So basically they're doing this investigation. So Major Hamilton his report became the initial complaint. And on October 15th, Colonel Feeland ordered Lieutenant Colonel Julius Terrell, whose photos here, to, and I quote, conduct an investigation in order to determine and report upon the facts which may be established in regard to the conduct of Major Robert E. Messerschmitt during the actions to which the regiment was engaged on 4 October. So there's an investigation in this. This is a serious deal. Messersmith, Messersmith, failed in his command because he allowed the 2nd Battalion to not only retreat, but he retreated himself. That's the issue. Um, now, on his his response, Messersmith seemed to place the blame on Captain David Jackson because he says, I established my post of command and Jackson remained at the top of my post of command until we were relieved. The command of Captain Jackson was some distance removed from my post of command, and so he was not supposed to be there with By him being away from the company, his company, the entire responsibility rested on uh, First Lieutenant Foster. So basically he's saying, well, I was in where I was supposed to be. It's my captain's fault. It's their fault. They should have been dealing with it. Uh, Measure Smith completely ignored the retreat in his letter. And despite the uh, one thing I do want to point out was that some of the Marines completely understood it. So in my book with Stephen and Bill Sellers, say Laguerre, uh, Captain James McBriar Sellers said, you know, uh, as of Messersmith's retreat, he said he looked after his men and the messages he sent back were correct since this later advance was ridiculous. I know I advanced there. So he, they were recalling that, yeah, that, that situation was horrible and falling back was the correct call. Retreating was the correct call, but it's the way he did it. That's the problem. Okay. So the investigation continues for uh, about another week or so. And the investigation to real basically said that in some cases, junior officers ordered their men to retire. And in others, the men went on their own volition. 
So he's commenting that in some cases, officers were the ones who said, all right, let's go. But other cases, people just went, which is a breakdown of command. Right. Um, the enemy machine gunners were only about a thousand yards from the front lines. And so this heavy fire led individual men to run to the rear. Uh, now, this is what I wanted to point out. Terrell's conclusion was, and I quote, it was tactically correct to withdraw to a better defensive position. So he's acknowledging that falling back, retreating was the correct call. That's what should have happened. However, the error came in permitting what he quoted, the front and support lines to uh, intermingle and retire together, thereby causing a chaotic escape towards the rear um, that began a general withdrawal of the regiment. So this breakdown, he didn't stop it. Messersmith commanded the support battalion. So he, and I quote, he should have held under the intense conditions until the front line had finished withdrawing. So after the third battalion had fallen back, yep. then he could have enacted his fallback with the second battalion. Unfortunately, there were about 250 troops of both the third and second battalions rapidly moving to the rear. So in a general panic, so disorganized, and it caused Major Hamilton and Captain Nelms managed to remedy the situation, averting a general retreat. So that's the conclusion of the investigation. Their conclusion was, while he should have retreated, Messersmith should have held the line. And he does wanted to, he did want to note, Terrell did note that um, Major Messersmith was not awake to the true tactical situation and did not initiate any steps to avert the danger of a panic. He thereby displayed a lack of leadership. So that's what they're going after. Not the retreat, but the allowance of a chaotic retreat. Okay. Um, he was responsible for all of these things. Uh, now, he did, he did make sure to add this note that um, in the conclusion, Messersmith displayed no lack of courage. The cuff of his blouse and his field glasses were penetrated by bullets. So he wasn't, they were trying to say he wasn't a coward. He was, I mean, he was, bullets went through his clothes. Right. Um, but it was his ability or it was his inability to prevent this retreat and joining in it that ensured he was going to be punished. So that's the end of Messersmith. He's his punishment was uh, ordered to be, and I quote, to some duty outside of this division, if in command of troops or not in command of troops within this division. So basically Either you're going to send him to some other division if you're going to make him in charge of troops, or if he stays in the second division, he's not going to be in charge of any troops. So instead of disciplinary actions, that's, that was their discipline. Was, and, what, and what actually did uh, wind up happening to, uh, happening to so him? So he ends up um, in the uh, paymasters uh, in Paris. That's Absolutely. where he goes. Uh, he gets sent to the paymaster in Paris, and... He, after the war in 1919, he sent back like early, early in 1919, he sent back and then they remove his major uh, rank and they put him back to captain, oh, which yeah. is interesting because most uh, Marines, at least I know this happened on the army, but most Marines kept their rank, but when he goes back, they demote him to captain and then he stays in the Corps, but he's never again in put in charge of troops. Wow. So, and he stays in until I think 27 or 29 when he retires, but Messersmith, I mean, 
his service before Blancmont was stellar. He had a great command in Bella Wood. He was um, recommended for several medals, and he never got any. He got no medals. He got nothing. Wow. And I think it comes from this, from, uh, from this con- uh, investigation, because the investigation proved that there was a chaotic retreat. How and about how about uh, Captain Peck? What, I know he was wounded. Nothing, nothing with Captain Peck because his his order was correct. He okay. was shot in the neck, and Dwight Peck ordered a retreat, a fallback. That's within the bounds. I can't find Peck ever being um, any disciplinary actions against him because his order is correct. Okay. But it, it falls on Messersmith as the commander to make sure it wasn't a full retreat, or at least not a chaotic so this is, I mean, basically the day itself, you now have what happened. You have overzealous Marines. You have a lack of brigade and divisional leadership. And then you have a, a collapse of company leadership that leads to a almost full retreat of the 5th Regiment. I mean, that would have been unconceivable to have the entire 5th Regiment retreating. But in this case, we had two-thirds of the fifth regiment retreating. So this is where, you know, that's, that's the second part of the story is the investigation. Give me just a second, James, just a quick second. I apologize. My, uh, one of my wily cats, I, I thought I had fully closed the door, but, uh, she came in, and I'm, I'm pretty sure listeners are going to be able to hear a couple of meows. <laughs> I guess uh, so try to like try to quietly sh- shoo her away, but <laughs> they they find a way in. Of course, like at, at no other time would uh, would they be interested in me except now. So, <laughs> um, okay. So, if, uh, so sorry for that. Uh, so mm-hmm. now, y- even in you know. We've all learned that that you know you, you learn from your successes, but of course, like we, I think we always feel we can learn more from our failures. So, can you have um, why why the reluctance to discuss October fourth? Like, what could what could Marines and and soldiers in, in the Army today learn from that day's uh, tragic events? Well, I think that's one of the most remarkable parts. So the last part of my article is dealing with this issue that there's a lack of acknowledgement that it ever happened. Um, So I'll I'll do that first to kind of get to the end. It's the second division records themselves don't mention the retreat that they'll say, like there's a couple that mention men are falling back, Um, but they don't really say anything about the retreat. Um, which is interesting in itself that the official records don't have maybe two mentions of this retreat. Um, and they even when they do, they say we were forced to retire. So again, retire, not retreat. Um, but not only do the official records neglect for October, uh, but commanding officers after the war pretend like it never happened, um, which may be because it's their costly errors in coordinating the attack that caused the problem. Um, so, for example, Brigadier General Wendell Neville, he commanded the 4th Brigade. Uh, he gave a lecture in 1919, actually here in Oklahoma at Fort Sill. Um, he gave a lecture, and in this lecture, he was talking about artillery tactics. And so he talks about 
uh, for October. And all he says is, on uh, at 6 a.m. October 4th, orders were issued for further advance where a position of resistance was established and held. The attack, however, was not carried out until the next day. So he just, he's basically saying, we ordered an attack on 4 October, but nothing happened until the next day, the 5th, which is obviously a lie. There was an entire attack on 4 October. Um, and he says, all he mentions about 4 October is, um, this attack, however, was not carried out until the next day. The French had not advanced on our left flank, and the enemy resistance on that flank was too great to disregard. It had to be cleaned up to some extent before we could advance our next uh, attack. And he says, these were reconnoitered. I never know that word. Reconnoitered. Reconnoitered. Yeah, that word. It's uh, during the afternoon French. and evening of October 4th. So he's basically claiming that the attack of 4 October never happened. So that's pretty crazy for the man who commanded the brigade is now claiming it never happened. He's just ignoring and he's ignoring those thousand casualties, those Marines who died and were wounded, either being ignored because then he goes on to talk about October 5th in detail, but he completely skips over four. Skips over the fourth. Wow. Yeah. And then there's also um, in 1921, the historical branch of the war department, uh, their war plans division put together a book, Blancmont, and these are gone, Champagne, monograph number nine. It completely glosses over 4 October. The only mention of that day, all it says, this book that's supposed to be about Blancmont, all it says about 4 October, to the western slip of Blancmont, from which the 4th Brigade had dislodged them on 4 October. All it says was the Marines dislodged some Germans on 4 October. That's it. That's the entire War Department statement on what happened on 4 October. Um, another one, again, from an officer in 1922, Major Edwin uh, McClellan. Now, this is one I think is one of the most significant pieces of evidence. Okay. He started writing a series of articles for the Marine Corps Gazette on the history of the 4th Brigade during the war. And he, were, he writes these short sections and consecutive magazine articles. So every magazine would have a section on the battles. Okay. So these are great. These articles are wonderful. They're detailed. They're really good. He gets a 3 October, so the next magazine should have 4 October. Never again does he write an article moving forward. The history of the 4th Brigade with McClellan stops on October 3rd. Interesting. He does not write another article moving forward. Um, it concludes that the with the 3rd um, October, that the 5th connected with the 3rd Brigade with the 6th Regiment in the rear. McClellan was the officer in charge of the Marine Corps historical section. He's the man who should know the history. And maybe, I can't prove it, but maybe he learned this and he realized this wouldn't look good if he actually published what happened. Wow. But he ends. It's something that he's been doing for months. Ends it, 3 October. Why does he do that? Why does he avoid the worst single day? Right? And I think some of the issues I brought up are the reasons. And now one that I think you might find interesting, because you mentioned him, Major General Lejeune. Mm-hmm. He wrote a memoir. Now, of course, his memoir is written not for military people, but for the public. Right. But he writes a memoir. He's in charge. And he acknowledged that the 5th Regiment made an advance through heavy machine gun fire along its front, left flank, left rear. And it continued uh, until being forced to halt. And then he says... 
Major Hamilton had a skillful command of stopping a German counterattack. So what he says is, yeah, the 5th Marines encountered a bunch of resistance. Oh, and then Major Hamilton did good. He just skips the fact that the Marines fell back and Hamilton had to stop. So that's Lejeune just glossing over it. So obviously, like I said, I know it's public consumption and not official history. Sure. But he's still in charge. And the fact that he just ignores it is, uh, you know, something that needs to be pointed out. But on top of that, you also have official histories like uh, the 5th Regiment's uh, history of the 2nd Battalion, 5th Regiment. And over the top with the 18th Company, 5th Regiment, both okay. official histories, both of them only simply mentioned that for October, they pushed forward under tremendous fire. And then they fell back to a better defensive position. That's it. So there is no mention of this. So in writing this, fortunately, what all the sources I found besides Mackin and Austin are these Marines who fought on the front lines. To them, 4 October is not something you can just forget. It's not something you can just pretend never happened. They are all making sure that they remembered what happened. These horrible experiences on the worst day of casualties for the Marine Corps. So when you ask what could they learn, I think the fact that we haven't talked about it, we, we need to talk about our failures, right? You, you need to understand the missteps you know, they talk about Bella Wood. They don't talk about Blancmange. They definitely don't talk about 4 October. So what can you learn from a failure? You can learn how to not commit those failures. Right. If, if you studied this day, you would see all of these issues that cause the worst casualties. That should have been something people learn from. That should be something people accept and realize that we can do better. But instead, the Marine Corps has tried to cover it up. And they've tried to pretend like it never happened. And they're acting like these missteps and the failure of leadership were just insignificant. But I mean, the rigor, it's the rigorous study of history. It demands that we investigate our failures as well as herald the victories. So it's not like, you know, I'm, I hate the Marine Corps. Obviously the opposite. I publish no. about the Marine Corps. I love writing about the Marine Corps. I think mm -hmm. it's a fascinating history, but we have to admit the failures of the past. We have to embrace them. And by doing so, we, we are revealing the true valor and those men who sacrifice, those Marines who sacrificed their lives and these lessons that were bought for a terrible price. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is something that cannot be forgotten. It cannot be yeah. slipped under the rug. Just because it's a blemish, a retreat, doesn't mean we should just pretend like it never happened. Yeah, correct. And also what I like about your your article here is that even in the case of um, major uh, Messersmith is that you don't, you know, it, it could be very easy to be like, well, he's the battalion commander. He's the guy in charge. He gets the blame for the, okay. for the retreat. But, you know, even it's excellent how you, how you dug in, uh, in your typical style of like going all the way down and drilling down deep and, and getting, getting to the fact that like, Hey, even the Marines acknowledge like, look, man, Messersmith is no, you know, he, he wasn't breaking down. He wasn't a coward by, by any means. Like this dude had bullet holes in his uniform, you know, like he was, yeah. he was in the thick of it. You know, they, you know, they even, um, even to acknowledge that, that nuanced view, like, yeah, like he, the retreat happened, you know, it, it, it was, it was handled incorrectly. Like we're not even arguing the fact that it was handled, you know, but um, I wonder if, if in the 1920s, it was simply not simply, um, 
but it was a way of controlling the narrative of like, hey, you know, we, we don't really want to highlight all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I think so. I mean, there's obviously things that get left out, which, you know, makes sense. But it's the fact that uh, if we just looked at the Marine Corps today, they always talk about Bella Wood, but they don't talk about Blancmois. They don't talk about Soissons. But Soissons was also very bloody and horrible for the Marines. You know, you have these things that need to be talked about. Mm-hmm. But by they they still to this day, they nitpick. They they choose Bella Wood. They talk about these victories. They don't want to acknowledge that they were treated which is understandable to a degree, but it still is something that needs to be talked about. And it's been something I've had pushback on, you know, how dare you say they were treated? Well, it's not me. It's here's literally um, the, the investigation, which um, was the reason that uh, Pete and John didn't include it in their book. They didn't have the sources. So all we had were these comments that, Oh yeah, there was a retreat, but we could never prove that there was an investigation to hundred percent conclude there was. And so when we found it, those documents opened up the world to this discussion. And without those, we wouldn't have been able to prove it. So it's something to be said just on the research that you have to find these documents that are so obscure to prove there was even a retreat. Yeah. Wow. Amazing work, James. Amazing. Now, final question here. Um, And I wouldn't, (laughs) sorry, man, (laughs) I wouldn't have the, foggiest idea of where you would begin but uh if <laughs> clearly like if you if you want to learn more about blank Mont, you can start with uh, with my podcast episodes but uh if you wanted to go into more you know like some of those secondary sources like actual physical books what would you suggest james where, where should someone begin if you want to start with secondary sources um obviously first off start with my article um yeah. but yeah you know listen to your podcast but it's uh, number one top of the list read lieutenant colonel john swift pete owens uh hideous price again like you said it's free you can download it directly from the marine corps or you can order a copy they'll send you a free copy and print oh um but that's that is the best that's really the only book that covers the whole event so that's and unfortunately that's really the only secondary that talks about the whole thing in detail I mean, there's other books. Um, we mentioned Mackin's book that mentions yeah. a part of it. There's, um, uh, what was it? Oh, I can't think of the name. Um, there's another book, another Marine memoir, but he mentions Blancmont just a little bit. Um, my book, Say Laguerre. Okay. Stephen and Bill, like that's a memoir. So there's memoirs. There's all these memoirs that mention it, but there are no books that really go into it other than pete and john's yeah okay excellent so So start there and look at their sources if you really want to dig dig deeper and maybe one day someone will actually write a monograph um about blancmont but until then we've got pete and john awesome awesome all right well folks the article again is called a calamity of errors the untold story of the fifth regiment at blancmont ridge on 4 october 1918 Again, links to the article will be in the episode notes, so you guys can go ahead and find it, read it for yourselves right away. Um, James, as always, man, thank you so much for taking the time out of your Friday afternoon here to uh, to come on the the podcast and and um, and and just share your your admirable uh, depth of research. That, that you put into your your articles, man. It's really really commendable, man. Excellent. I appreciate it. It's a it's a great to be here for the third time. I gotta I guess I have to beat Rob. 
Yeah, I think I think you. I'll let him know. So. Okay. <laughs> but excellent, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. I appreciate it. All right. If you'll just stay with me.